0: E Hello,
1: and welcome back to the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast for, well, it'll be for Monday, April 24, by the time I'm done editing this. I'm Dane Cash, and what you've just heard is the musical brilliance of my co-host, joining me as ever this week, cycling analyst extraordinaire and, apparently, musician Extraordinaire, Cosmo Catalog. A
2: minor music theory student. Yes, here I am. Hooray! I do like uh, I that was, song. You're I was
1: so glad to get to. you. I mean, I. I <laughs> it gets. It's very catchy. It gets stuck in my head, and I was very glad that after all these years, I got to put it at the beginning of a podcast. Yay. So, yay! Uh, also joining Cosmo and me this week, we've got Ruth Winder. Ruth Winder, who? Uh, let's see, Ruth, what have you done uh, in your career this week? Ruth Winder, who won uh, the Tour de Feminin in twenty seventeen, yeah. Uh, welcome to the show, Ruth Winder, former U.S. national champ. Great to have you back.
3: Thanks. Good to be back.
1: And Chief Tartan Correspondent, live from Edinburgh, Kit Nicholson. Welcome back to the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast.
4: Yeah, good to be here.
1: <laughs> uh, I don't know that we have any other Tartan Correspondents, but I feel like you're you're at the top of the of that hierarchy for sure.
4: Well, now that I've written an essay on Tartan on the website, I suppose that I, uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you're I, listening to this podcast and you don't know what we're talking about, head on over to escapecollective.cc and uh, go go read about it. Uh, also, subscribe, because we, we love when you do that. It makes us very happy. And we make better shows when we're happy. So we're here to talk about the Ardennes classics, uh, specifically Liege-Bastogne-Liege. That's the race that we all just watched. We watched the women's race like 12 hours ago, because for whatever reason, they decided that one had to finish way before the men's race, uh, and then the men's race we just saw. So, let's start with the women's race, because it was underway first, and finished first. Cosmo Catalano,
2: what happened in the women's race? There was a really strong break. Not sure when they went away, because they were there when we got on TV. Uh, Marlon Reiser <laughs> rode away from the break when she went up Redoute. There was a relatively ineffective chase till Amanda Spratt was caught. Trek chased her pretty effectively. At least the and Vollering uh, bridged across. They did bridge across. Actually, a group of six got uh, together. Uh, Roycer got clear in a descent. longoborghini got up to at the bottom of the descent. Estee Works was like, actually, this is not the combination we want. They magically switched Vollering and Roycer and then uh, they went, uh, Longo Borghini and Vollering went into the line together and... Had a pretty good two-up sprint that uh, Volloering won pretty convincingly. So,
1: and in so doing, she won the Ardennes triple. She of course won Avstel. and then Le uh, and then La Flèche Wallonne, and then uh, yeah, today she took her second straight liege Bestone, liege win. So Demi Volering, I think, uh, tip of the cap to her. She's had a pretty good season so far. I, I'm pulling up her results. Uh, just to get a sense of how good of a season she's having so far. So in the last one, two, three, uh, seven one-day races that she has done, she has won five of them. Uh, she didn't win the Tour of Flanders, but her teammate did. Uh, so that was pretty good. The only one that she didn't win and that a teammate didn't win was Provence Pale. But even in those two races, she was second. So that is a run of dominance that I think, well, SD SDWorks has to be pretty happy with it. And uh, Demi Vollering... Still only twenty six years old, has really. Uh, I think last year everybody knew she was. I, I guess probably not fair to say she's coming into her own now because she was already pretty darn good last year. Already won Liège last year, but this is a, a, a sort of dominance that we have not seen from her yet. And at, at this point, I feel like she is. She's just at the top of of the women's peloton right now. It, it's kind of hard, I think, to to say otherwise. So another big win for SD Works, which just keeps winning by Graces. Cosmo, you wrote here on our run sheet that Trek showed a lot of patience. And at least yeah. that means that another team tried to challenge SDWorks and came pretty darn close with Lungo Borghini at the, at the end.
2: Yeah, o- other teams have been trying. Um, Trek, I-, I think, was very... I think it's easy to get overactive, uh, especially... like We kind of saw it in um, Amstel. There's just a lot of attacks, a lot of stuff happening, and SDWorks not doing very much. And this was very much, you know, EsteeWorks got in a pretty aggressive position. Trek was there, they had Spratt up the road too. But after Royster got clear, they were very hands-off. They let Movistar throw these this attempt this chase by attack that really wasn't working. And then really waited till they had Spratt there and went full on. And you could see that they split the field in that chase and you know, basically got free separation. Uh and it was really, it was really well-timed. And in it, it, within, you know, the final 15K, they had a great selection for them with Longo and Roycer. And just EsteeWorks had that over the, the Cote de Non-Classé, the, the, the unclassified climb uh, at the at the end of the race, were able to, to switch them around. And I think, you know, even if Gaia Reolini had been a little bit, not that she did poorly uh, by any means, but if she'd been a little bit more keyed in on, on holding Vollering's wheel, she could have gotten across and given them a lead out, um, but yeah, I thought they rode really well and really strategically, really picked the moments where they wanted to race hard and race them, and it was cool to see.
3: I totally agree. I think they raced really well to, today um, as a team. It was really fun to watch them have more numbers to play with as well. I thought, you know, Movistar, like you said, kind of threw these attacks that didn't really seem to make sense because Van Vluten at one point was just dropping Liana, and then Liana came back and then just kind of dropped herself, and then and I wasn't really sure what they were really doing because it didn't feel like they had the legs for it um but then trek putting themselves kind of in front of the race a little bit even when demi was kind of like far back uh, when eliza bridged across um you know that like that was really smart i thought in my mind and she would kind of put herself further up the climb by the time that vollering did come across um and i th- yeah it was fun to watch i thought it was a really exciting race i finished that race i was like oh my gosh i can't wait to talk about it on the podcast it's so fun <laughs>
4: I was going to point out that, I mean, there was a bit of a theme today um, in both races, but what was really good to see in Trek, like you were saying, with the strength in numbers that they have now, um, there was a real confidence to what they did in that in those last, what was it, 20 kilometres, waiting to catch Spratt before they did that massive push, um, and then just kind of Cracking on uh, and sprat helping out for a bit and she and van Anroy doing a massive pull and it was it it was really i don't know because we, we've got used to seeing sd works all over the peloton as if there are 12 riders in their jerseys <laughs> and then trek was doing that in the peloton today yeah russo was up front so sd works didn't need to be there but it was really great to see someone actually taking the race to sd works
1: I want to say that I was a little bit unfair, I think, to the team, because at the end of the day, I think for, for me coming into this race, it was the first time this year in the Classics where it was so much about Demi volering as opposed to Demi volering and two or three other people, uh, or at least so I thought. But Marlon Rooster played a, a really good race today. Uh, obviously, she finished on the podium, and she made it, uh, she really kind of made the race there in, in the final 20 minutes or so, 30 minutes or so, with her attack, and that really set up Volering very well. So it was, really wasn't just Demi volering, even on this sort of terrain where I think it, it's on the Cobble Classics where SD Works really has that dynamic where they can have, yeah, it seems like they have 12 riders out there. But even in the Ardennes with, with Rooster, apparently, who I should give more credit to, I guess, now, uh, they had a good team dynamic and they were able to, well, win the race. So uh, not much else, not much negative you can say about that.
4: She was incredible on La Redoute, just dropping everyone and putting time into the bunch. It was just kind of, I don't know if she'd gone and won the race, it would have been no surprise. Um, it was, yeah, it was amazing to see.
2: I, I really liked how she went in with this at least from my perspective, went in with the strategy of I'm going to ride hard from the bottom of the climb. And if they attack, they attack and I get dropped, but I'm just going to ride hard because I don't want to do this tempo changing stuff. And it was very impressive. Um, yeah. She's
1: the, the way that she was able to ride on a, a climb that steep really impressed me uh, because that's I mean, her skill set to me is is more of the big engine, slightly less steep climb kind of race that that's where you would think that she would drive. And she did thrive off the front solo for a while with her big engine. But to be able to do that much on a gradient like that is really impressive for Roycer.
3: Yeah, I think I've seen Ellen Van Dyke finish there, maybe like fifth, a couple years in a row, and she's the same kind of big engine rider. But this race, the climbs are so hard, but if you can just ride your own pace the whole time, and if you're as strong as you are, like these women are, then they'll still finish up there. So I think like Ellen's tactic was always like, Ruth, you can go and try and chase whoever down on the steepest part of the climb when they attack. And I would finish like 50th because I would do that and then completely explode. <laughs> Meanwhile, Ellen would be like, OK, bye and passing on the climb, just doing her own thing. And, you know, Royce did this today, but she was off the front. She put herself in front sooner. So she got to do that and then just kind of manage instead of going with that really punchy speed from the top climbers. Because you saw her not quite be able to hold on to it when Vollering did come across. Um, and I believe she would have if she could have. And she didn't. So.
1: Going into that finale, I fully expected Volering to win. Um, was I right, Ruth, do you think, to expect that? Uh, you've raced with Elisa in the past. I, I would just think in my head that Volering would be the faster sprinter most of the time. Is, is that accurate?
3: yeah yeah for sure (laughs) I mean it would have been nice to see it a little closer maybe but I think everybody kind of has watched Demi be pretty strong in some punchy sprints and Elisa's not slow for sure um but just in that kind of finish and she's been pretty sick and you kind of lose a lot of that snappiness as well when you've been off and out of it for a while
1: well was there anything that you think Elisa could have done in that finale differently to not finish second and and, and finish first uh, as, as obviously what I'm trying to get at there
3: I'm not sure. I mean, some people, I feel like on the internet, like oh, she shouldn't have pulled as much cuz following really wanted the triple and blah 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 and I'm like, I don't know, she had to race, you know. Yeah. She couldn't just not race and she's been in a little bit of a position like that before where she didn't race and she got a, been told she was a stupid bike racer and I'm sure that scarred her for life. Um I think maybe in no, I, like if we're just specific, I was going to tangent about something earlier in the race, but in the specific sprint, I'm not really quite sure. It would have been nice to see maybe Vollering lead it out, but I think Vollering was winning that. She wanted it so badly. Longo
2: didn't have a ton of cards to play, right? Because Roycer is, is still back there, and all respect to Rayalini, like, she is not a sprinter. Um, so Vollering could basically stop and wait for that group to catch them without hindering SD works, SD works ability to win that race. Like I I thought Longo Borghini did it pretty well. So, you know, kind of trying to give, make it so that the rider behind had the least amount of ground to pass her when the explosion happened, like really try went side to side, tried to kind of catch Vollering between her rear wheel and the, and the side just kind of limiting her options. And Vollering was, Vollering was pretty confident. She knew she was going to win it. Um, are just, sometimes you you do what you can, you do everything right. And there's just nothing you can do.
1: Yeah. I think that, We've seen actually that over and over again, this Classics campaign where uh, you do everything you can and that's just all you can do and there's a stronger rider on the day. And there have been a number of races that have played out that way. Uh, this Classics campaign, uh, that I, I wanted to bring it to talking about Demi Vollering herself a little bit and maybe a bit more broadly from than, than just this race today about what she's done so far this year and sort of where she is in her career and, and even in, in the sport generally. Uh, I think if you look at her results... The past five, maybe even 10 years, there have been. I feel like there have been more often than not, there, uh, this, the seasons have either been dominated by Anna van der Breggen or Anna van Voyten. And we've seen that they, they kind of trading off uh, for, for a few years there. And I feel like after today, I think Vollering has shown the kind of dominance so far this season that I'm kind of expecting her to finish out this season with that amount of, of, of dominance. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw her continue to win in a way that kind of harkened back to what we were seeing from Van Der Breggen and, and Van Vuyten. Meanwhile, Van Vuyten is still in the peloton. It's not as if, you know, Van Der Bregen's retired, but Van Vuyten is still here. And so I, I guess the, the, what I'm building up to is wondering, you know, have, have we basically seen the end of Van Vleuten's, uh very dominant run? Is, 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 that, is that the past now?
3: I guess it's hard to say. I think that at some point, yes, you know, she's not won anything so far this spring. And in the past, she would have won something already. So this year so far, yes. But that's, I mean, specifically Van Vluten. But, you know, Vollering, we've seen her still be pretty consistent the last couple of years. She was still placing podiums in these races and then still doing super well in July in the racing that we had then. So I have no other expectation other than to see her winning later in the year.
4: I think with Van Vluten, I mean, it's definitely seemed in the past few races, like almost when she puts in her attacks and she does her, I mean, the the body language that is like no other bike rider, um, I mean, and I hope this doesn't sound mean, it doesn't mean to be, but it almost looks like she's accelerating through treacle or something. It's just not got the punch that she's had before. But I do wonder if it's, I mean, we're only in April. Yes, the spring classics are all over, but... um, if she, Maybe she really wants to peak for, I mean, that, that word that we hear a lot in cycling, she wants to peak for the big target of defending the Tour de France and all, getting the, all three Grand Tours. Um, she wants to make sure that she wins something big. And yes, yeah, she hasn't quite got there yet, but she's building up gradually.
1: Uh, just a note for our listeners: A treacle is an, uh, according to Wikipedia, an, uh, uncrystallized syrup made during the refining <laughs> is of it sugar. Molasses might
4: is, be a good that... way to it for America. So that not... uh, apparently
1: it's like, What are you in...
4: talking about, Dave? Oh no!
1: I... <laughs> apparently it's referenced in Tess of the Dervilles, which I read in you know 20 years ago. But I don't. Yeah. Treacle
4: is is amazing. Treacle. You got, that means you've never had treacle pudding.
1: That that is oh, accurate. Just... <laughs> I have never had that. Yeah. Uh, it God, sounds good. It sounds good to me.
4: Yeah. It's hearty. <laughs> Good winter winter pudding. Yeah, Pudding okay. dessert.
1: Yeah. Uh, we'll have to have a big bike race somewhere in... In Glasgow? Sure, yeah. <laughs> so then I can talk about the local cuisine. Uh, would Treacle be up? With, like, I feel like I would hit a number of things before I got to Treacle, though, right? I mean, that's... <laughs> if I'm talking oh, yeah. about the famous local cuisine of Scotland, I, I yeah.
4: Oh, yeah, haggis, neeps, and tosses. I was just going to say, them. I think yes. there would be, yeah,
1: various insides of animals that get encased. Yeah, anyway. Uh,
4: Vegetarian haggis is very good. Just just Okay. All right. hmm. yeah.
2: Cosmo, you had... I was just going to completely concur. I think it looks a little bit like she's sort of racing herself into shape. I think maybe, it, she's pretty old, right? Like 39, 38, somewhere in there? Uh, 40. She's over 40 now. 40, yeah. So, like, the idea of maintaining peak fitness, you know, April through July is a big ask, I think. And, you know, if you're, if you, if you, if you have to pick the, uh, the later season targets, I think you kind of have to come into your spring a little bit, a little bit less on point. I will say, like, some of her, the timing of her, some of her attacks has not made a ton of sense to me. Um, and that may be just she, has been strong enough in the past for them to make less sense. Um, but I, I definitely, yeah, that I, I feel like she's maybe kind of just shaken off the rust still, even in at the end of April.
4: We've mentioned stuff already, Lippert and Van Blooten both attacking. It seems like, and it's very easy to do, and you know, you don't really know what your legs are doing until you start pedaling, but it seems like they are trapped in thinking and feeling like they should be or imagining that they are still in 2022 and it's not quite working out for them i mean they're trying they're, they're not, not they're not giving up and sitting on the back
1: well i think it's a really good point to say like what, what if in the past you've been able to drop everybody so easily it makes a big difference where you're going to attack and we can, we can get to this when we get to the men's race when you can apparently win liege best on liege attacking three climbs out uh, if you're strong enough, and I think Van Vlieten has had that uh, level of strength, and she's been at that level and and has had that much of a margin over the rest of the women's peloton for so long that it probably does change the equation pretty dramatically. That you know she's maybe still trying to figure out okay when does when does 2023 Anemiek Van Vlieten attack? When's the right time for that? Because she's uh, she's not as dominant as she was, and yeah now now it's Demi Vollering, and I've said this I think twice already during this, the classics, but just hats off to Danny Stam for what he has managed to, to build over there with it seems like yeah, they they don't have Anna Vanderbrick and Chantal and Brook Black and they're still dominating. And, you know, there was a period where those two were sort of the newer riders on the team and they were dominating. So
3: I do want to give Meek Van Vluten a little bit of credit because she did do a really good attack. I know we're talking about Liege but in Flesh Alone she attacked the first time up the Meodel oh, Wee and I thought yeah. it was a really good breakaway. That was with one lap to go of the course, so.
1: And at the end of the day, I mean, she's still finishing pretty highly. In these yeah, races she's finishing top like, ten in all of yeah, his yeah. races. She's not falling <laughs> off a cliff or anything, for sure.
4: Uh. Yeah, by all accounts, it's a great. She's had a good season. uh yeah. It, And yeah, I, I, like I said, I didn't want to, my tree comment come I didn't want to be. Yeah, she, it's it's one of those things where you've got the rainbow bands and you're you're you've got the target on your back and you are Annemiek Van Vloot and you win everything um and but it's also the final season so there's an au- an awful lot of pressure um so yeah it can't be easy to you know have that much expectation and but yeah i don't know i think she's a very interesting uh, rider to watch and she did initiate the accelerations on Larido in the peloton um she wanted to get things going so she's very determined to keep keep the racing moving that's always great to see
2: before we move on to the men's race i i think I want to give a shout-out to S. Dayworks for sort of defying a lot of uh, conventional wisdom around teamwork and cycling, and maybe I put air quotes around that conventional wisdom. i describe it as maybe the sort of things you'd see in an internet comment about how someone did a bad job, like, oh, they attacked and they had to team it up the road. That's bad. And there were, you know, multiple times today where Vollering was nominally leading the chase. She's the first next rider down the road with Roycer up the road. And it was it wasn't like she was making it any less likely for Estee works to win the race.
3: I think it was really fun to watch that because Demi obviously had so much like want to win this race. She wanted to win all three. And it, but it also just seemed to me, particularly on the climb when they were getting super close to Royce, that they were going to come back. To me, it seemed like they were going to come back. And then once she came back, then everyone was just going to be watching Volering to attack anyway. So it didn't hurt them at all for her to be kind of like whatever chasing I don't really see it that way because the group was just moving faster anyway and when Damien had to do the effort to get up to Longo Borghini um, and kind of move up anyway that was to me it was just like a cool way to use your teammates and then she just could play that card and save more energy with Royce right behind her so close to the finish I thought it was
4: really fun to watch
1: certainly seems like they kind of have it dialed <laughs> I mean and, and yeah, it was definitely
4: it, instinctive today
1: yeah, they they. It's funny that like a month ago we we're sort of talking about in, intra team strife, and then they've gone on to just like crush everybody with with good teamwork, with really good teamwork uh, for the last several weeks. Uh, all right, men's race. There was a a race altering crash in the early goings. Heartbreak. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, <laughs> so p- sad. Potentially, potentially even a sort of. 2023 bike racing season altering crash. We'll get to that. Mm. Uh, and I'm sure the placeholders will talk a fair bit about that. Cosmo, what happened in this race?
2: Uh, there was a hundred kilometers of lead out by, uh, Sudol quick step. We may have previously referred to them as a the bad classics team. Um, but they, they rode hard at the front for a long time. Remco Evenepoel attacked. Pidcock kind of could follow him. Ben Healy was close. And then, uh, Remco went away and never came back. Uh, there was an interesting tactical re- regroup in the in the battle for second, um, a couple of times actually, thinned out to about three riders, I think. And uh, Pidcock won the sprint. Ben Healy lost it, uh, and uh, I'm blanking on the name of the Bahrain guy in third. And I feel
4: Santiago Buitrago.
2: Thank you.
1: The crasher, I didn't actually name. Yes. It is of course Tadej Pogacar, the two-time Tour de France winner, former liege best only age winner, and heading into the day, the the favorite to win the race. Uh, He crashed and sustained some fractures in his wrist, uh, scaphoid, and maybe one other bone.
2: uh, Yes, there was the... It had a cool name.
1: (laughs) Required surgery. So he had surgery. Instead of winning Liege Bastogne-Liege today, he had surgery, which is probably not what he woke up thinking was going to be happening. Probably not the best way to spend your Sunday. Uh, And I... I think it has to be said after the incredible uh spring campaign that he has had and the 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 general dominance in so many different ways he was I think and still may be uh, a, a, an obvious saver for the Tour de France and now this just changes a lot of the a lot of the conversation now it's going to be, you know, can he recover quickly enough? What's this, what's he going to be like when he gets back on the bike? And so we're, we're having, you know, we're podcasting hours after his surgery. So we have obviously no answers to that and we won't have any answers to that for a while. Uh, but that's definitely going to be, I think a big talking point for the rest of the season is Pogacar's injury that he sustained today in a crash that happened before TV coverage, as far as I'm aware, Unless, unless, unless other places had TV coverage before we did, uh, yeah, so we didn't even we didn't see what happened really. Uh, we we just kind of heard Tadej Pogacar out of the race, and then it really was I think all eyes on Remco Evenepoel, who already had plenty of eyes on him as a as the defending champion and as the guy wearing rainbow stripes, and also white shorts.
3: I turned on the TV right at, like whatever whenever I woke up, and no one had mentioned Tade yet, and I was like, why is no one talking about him? And then Zach was like, <laughs> checked whatever the internet, and I was like, he's crashed out, and I'm like, I don't care what is the spike race anymore? (laughs) I was so excited. I'm so heartbroken. Like, what are we watching? Who's going to, where's the battle? And then, I don't know. So my enthusiasm for this one is not quite the same as it was for the women's.
4: No, absolutely agree. It was, I mean, I was really excited to get that battle that we've been waiting for between Pogacar and Evinipal. I thought there was a very good chance that Evinipal would attack, Tally Pogacar would latch on and then say, see you later, mate. But still, it would have been great to get the two of them, and, you know, whether it was um, a Pogacar show or an inevitable show, or if they duked it out to the line, um, yeah, it was. I was really looking forward to that uh, that duel that we've not yet seen. I don't think they've obviously they've raced together, but they've not really had that mano a mano match yet. It's
2: yeah, we've been watching one guy smash everybody in every race he started, and finally he starts a race with another guy expected to smash everybody. And we, we lost, we did not get our smash. Well, we did get smashing. but It was Ooh, just the yeah. two smashy people did, not, did yeah. not.
3: And I hate this conversation because I hate being the person that's like, if and when, but. I'm like, this is bike <laughs> yeah, racing. It doesn't matter. I don't want to talk about this hypothetical bike race that didn't happen. If the person didn't, like, whatever, this is we, how it works. We don't have um, a whole lot else to talk about, though, because it was just so, <laughs> I can't. Yeah. I'm honestly
2: like, Pat LeFevre should be buying everybody a nice fancy lunch at whatever that place he's been to for all the classics races has been. Because his team rode really, really well.
3: They did, and it was extremely impressive. Like There's no denying his impressive feat um, at all.
4: It was a Sudol quick step that we haven't really seen um, at the Classics. Maybe that's a little bit harsh, because they have tried to win races, but they, um, and I mean in one-day events, um, but yeah, I mean, they were on the front the whole day, and it looked like, you know, the commentators um, hypothesized that maybe they were burning matches too soon, I did a little bit of that myself, I have to admit. <laughs> but, you know, the team's finish line was Laradute. Um So the fact that Van Wilder was the only one left, that was fine. That was all he needed to do. He just needed to get Pogacar to 34 kilometres to go and leave him. Not of all. <laughs> Still sad. Um, <laughs> and then just let him go. And it worked. So confidence was very well founded.
1: I was not at all surprised that Remco Evenepoel won the race when Tadej Pogacar crashed out. I think everybody assumed that's probably what was going to happen. But I was very surprised that he basically won the race on La Redoute because it is so far out from the finish now. Uh, they added the Côte de Forge back this year, and you still have to go over the Roche à Facon. This race has come so far, <laughs> proverbially, from being the... Uh, wait around until the final kilometer uphill finish race. And that, uh, yes, Remco Evanapool attacked last year on Labrador as well, but it's even farther this year, and there was another climb in between it and the finish this year. And he's still, yeah, as you said, that was sort of their finish line. They raced, they set him up to go on that climb, knowing he is that good, that he can go there and hold on. And of course, you can hold on if you are somebody like Remco Evanapool going solo when you're that good at time traveling. So it's just... Uh, I don't know, a perfect plan. They, they really, they really played this one to perfection, and I don't, know, I don't know that there's anything anybody else could have done today. To me, they're like it's what, I can't think of any tactical decision. He attacked from so far. You, you, what, the only other thing you could say is, okay, maybe attack from farther out than them, but you would just get chased <laughs> down. Nobody's going to attack from farther out than La Redoute and, get, and make it to the finish. So I feel like they just played this one perfectly, and it's what you can do if you are that strong.
2: So Yumbo actually kind of tried with Tratnik. Um, he he put on a pretty good show out out uh, on the course with a with a very early attack. Um, and yeah, they I mean they brought him back when they wanted to for sure. But it, it definitely it, when he and Sheffield went, I was like, okay, I kind of see this kind of getting a group up ahead the way we saw at Flanders, where a lot of kind of stronger names got up ahead before the kind of expected Pogacar attack. Um, yeah, I. He Tratnik actually maybe rode too hard because he dropped the two people who went with him you know, w- within a couple of kilometers. So uh, they it was it was sort of tried. The, yeah, the they, they did. Yeah,
1: I, I think that's basically just the point, though. It's that you attacking farther yeah. out than Lauderud is too far, and if you don't attack from farther out Dude, then you're gonna lose to pull That's exactly what happened.
4: Yeah, Trek tried a couple of times. Well, a, a couple of times maybe not accurate, but Bakkamolima attacked and momentarily isolated um uh evenapult but it seemed to be more of a test to see what sudal quicksit would do and whether he would stay isolated or something I, i'm not sure and it was so far out that it was never monomer was never gonna crack on and then there was the odd two up trek segafedo chase group that didn't seem to be working together um on the descent off laradoo in pursuit of um Evenepool, and that was basically the last we saw of Trek. But yeah, Ineos spent a lot of time. Well, I say a lot of time in comparison to every other team minus Sudar Quickstep. Ineos seemed to be determined to um, mimic what Sudar Quickstep was doing. Um, but yeah, it was there was very clearly one team heads and shoulders above the rest.
1: I feel like that, that is the, the other big unknown. that Pogacar being the main one. But, uh, you know, Pidcock's entire classics campaign this year kind of derailed by a crash and a concussion, and yet he still ended up having some really good results even after his Strada Bianca win. Uh, I think if you're Ineas you play it the way you play it today, just hoping he is at 100% and maybe, you know, okay, he's at 90%, so he didn't win, he finished second. But I think that they probably played it as best they could.
2: I will say Pidcock came back really well. um, When uh, Evnipul finally dropped him, like, he immediately, he didn't respond. He just re- he reached out, grabbed a bottle, like, stuffed some food into his mouth, and kind of waited for the race to second to regroup. And I'm wondering, if he's still, it's, this is purely speculative on my part for all but, uh, for last week at Amstel. I think at Flanders, he pretty, he came out and said he had a hunger flat. At Amstel, he really seemed to kind of, like, I don't know, fade out a little bit at a certain point. And I'm wondering if he's still kind of coming back from that concussion, trying to get his, his feeding back together where it was because not only was he kind of seemed to have this dead need to feed moment, um, you know, 30 K out, but he was also freezing after the race, like uncommonly cold, I think for, for uh, what he was expecting. Cause I mean, he, they were not ready to have like a super warm coat for him at the finish line. He literally said, Oh, I'm bloody cold in one of the interviews and was like visibly shivering on the podium. It was kind of amazing to me that, that any of us never came in, uh, with their attention to marginal gains and, you know, got, got him warm. <laughs> yeah, just I don't think you can warm yourself back up, putting on layers of thin spandex over other wet layers of th- thin spandex. Hasn't been my experience anyway.
1: That's too big of a gain. So it's <laughs> only marginal gains is what they, they try to work on being warm. That's too big of a deal. Santiago Buitrago was your third place finisher. He's had quite a nice year. uh won a stage of the Giro last year and, uh, now finished on the podium at Liège, and he's only 23 years old. So I think Bahrain Victorious has to be happy with with that signing. Uh, I was a little bit, I was kind of pulling for Ben Healy to kind of land on that podium uh, after his uh, uh, Amstel Gold race, though finishing the top five in Brabantse Pijl, Amstel, and Liège. Really nice ride from him and from from EF. Another top finish from EF, which yeah, I think the team has has to be happy with the way that they've been consistently contending.
2: And he said he wasn't climbing that well. In his post-race interview, he's like, oh, I'm I'm missing a little something on the climbs. And I'm like, at one point, you dropped everyone except Varemko. Not permanently, but distanced them on climbs in this race. So that's that's pretty good. If he's missing something off his climbing,
4: like, (laughs) look out. He's at least the second DF rider this spring to say, if you'd asked me last week, would I be satisfied with X place, a top five finish, he'd have been delighted but now he's disappointed because and that just goes to show the form that he's in the first one was Paulus at at, um, Roubaix was it Roubaix? Flanders Flanders um uh but yeah so it's it that team is just flying um and Healy is I I I don't know if you saw the um the uh what EF put on Instagram yesterday The Wes Anderson inspired reel um (laughs) but they seem to pick up on a likeness w- between Healy and Anderson. Now I can only see him in a corduroy suit. Healy, that is. Yeah, so, that was, um, that I think, was nice. Yeah. I
1: liked that. Uh, good marketing.
4: Yeah. I want to see it.
1: Oh, one, other, one other thing I, I wanted to point out, this kind of going back to, to the race-defining uh, you know, quote-unquote attack, I, I just wanted to note, I don't really have a strong point to make here other than I don't know that I've ever seen less of an attack than when, uh, than when Evanapool dropped Pitcock today. <laughs> It, it wasn't he hardly even accelerated it was just like pitcock had gone so deep trying to stay on his wheel that when evanapul left him behind it was like he barely had to do anything he, he was just he couldn't hold on
4: yeah he just discovered that he was alone and ran with it
1: yeah and and oh i guess i guess i go win now seemed like the yeah. and he did so good for him
3: And because of that, I was also super just impressed that Pidcock didn't completely explode. Because to me, it just seemed like he tried so hard. And then, yeah, he he did just kind of fade off the wheel, I guess, and he decided that. But I was just really impressed that he still got second in the end, because he has also... Been in races where he just gives everything, and then I don't know if he realizes he's not going to win or if he does just completely ride himself into the ground and then finishes somewhere that we don't care about.
4: <laughs> yeah, he said in his interview that uh, paul had asked if he would take a turn, he said, I just really can't. Um, but yeah, like, uh, what said about his well, his resurgence towards the finish made me think it and it's so we see this all the time in bike racing people coming back to the front having had a bit of a breather but that's but on a massive race like today so 260 almost kilometers there's it's it's a slog um so you wouldn't be at all surprised if somebody did just completely blow up but we saw it several times with the quick step riders who would alaphilippe look like he popped twice or three times. Louis Vuitton did exactly the same thing, just go and sit on the back and recover. And so they're giving themselves a chance to recover. They understand their bodies well enough to know that they can do that and then go and put in another massive effort and either get a medal or help their teammate get a medal. And um, I don't know, I mean, maybe that's not a particularly interesting takeaway, but I was struck by how there was a real intention and confidence and, um, I don't know, the, the heads didn't drop when they physically get dropped by somebody else. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I think that's maybe a, something that comes with monuments and grand tours. You get that, you know, unstoppable determination.
1: Um, Cosmo, you had more to say about uh, people being cold after this race, not just Pitcock.
4: I
2: was just amazed to see the person who just smashed everybody. And clearly, you know, his biggest vulnerability is, is, is almost certainly not going to be other riders, but things that might happen to him, like crashing or getting sick. And he's sitting in his wet, visibly discolored skin suit, um, soaking wet, talking into a camera. You know, out in the wind in a not particularly warm day, and no, no one from his team has you know come over and put you know a warm coat on him or taken off his wet helmet and put on a dry helmet. Um, it just it seems to me like this is like we said with like I said with Pidcock. It's it's I mean, in. I get it. Like after a race, you're hyped up, you got race brain, you're not thinking about this stuff, but this is what the support team is for, right? To help you with the stuff that you really can't help yourself with as a
4: racer. The temperature clearly very, uh, well, the temperature clearly dropped uh, precipitously in that final uh, run into the finish. I mean, they were all very wet. There was a lot of descending. And we were seeing Philippe crossing the line and his jaw was visibly quaking with his as his teeth chattered. And he's pulled up to the team staff and um, and, yeah, he, he could not have looked colder if he tried. Um, and, he, you know, he couldn't even set his jaw. Um, yeah, and they all looked cold on the podium. Uh, you quite often see it in cyclocross, but it just, yeah, I, I totally agree. In a sport when everyone's so well looked after, or we, or we seem to get the idea that, every, particularly on the big teams, were marginal gains, it's, yeah, I felt for them.
1: All right, that's our Liège breakdown, our Monday morning de of the final monument of the spring there's one more monumental classic of course but that's not until the leaves start to fall in northern Italy so we're really transitioning out of one day racing and uh, into the bigger stage races of the year which nicely dovetails into the last part of the show let's just tell you what's coming up in the world of bike racing this week we have what I would, I in my opinion, is the most scenic bike race on the world tour, uh, the Tour de Ramedy, which takes riders through the French-speaking part of Switzerland and is just one amazing mountain vista after another. Uh, so that is going to kick off this week in the French-speaking part of Switzerland. And it it is a little bit sort of strangely located on the calendar, where I think it's too close to the Giro for any real Giro contenders to go Uh, but we will get to see a handful of big names I think both of the Yates brothers Simon and Adam will be there Sergio Aguita is expected to be there I believe the Ineos Grenadiers are sending Egan Bernal
4: yeah I think it's the race that typically the Team Sky uh, then Ineos riders the Tour de France um, favourites would go and win um, quite often in the rain at Remendia, I seem to remember, but yeah, it was one of the Froome-Wiggins build-up races towards the Tour de France.
1: I remember it also being a, a Simon Spilak, um, mm. you know, yes. world world championships every year. He was always really good there. <laughs> Him and Rudy Costa really liked racing in Switzerland for a little while. That was always fun to watch.
2: Well, part of that, the course is is fairly unique. Like it's not just a mini Grand Tour. Like it's there are kind of intermediate climby sprinty things where you'll have like a cat to climb and then a descent into the finish um which is cool i, I like it when when races have their own unique persona
1: It also uh for the moment that at least according to the provisional start list it will be an opportunity to see mark cavendish sprinting at the world tour level which we haven't had that many uh opportunities for you i mean just there just haven't really been that many stage races yet and uh, i think he and his team are very anxious to start winning some races because that has been something that has eluded them in general so far this year. Uh, Asana team having one of the worst years in recent memory, but uh, fortunately for them, Alexei Lushenko did finally go out and win some races, won the Giro de Sicilia uh, the other day. And uh, he is also expected to be in Ramondi.
2: So that That's a little interesting, like, because I don't think of it as a as a... Tremendous hotbed of, of group sprints again with that kind of like unique finish pattern. Um,
1: well, there is a prologue of 6.8 kilometers, and maybe he
4: has his eye on that. Uh, you never know.
2: That would be amazing.
4: <laughs> yeah, it seems like a strange build up for the Giro, especially as it's, I mean, unless it's a training camp because,
2: yeah, I
1: mean, for a sprinter, I, mean, I feel like he's it's less do weird. The,
4: do the half Giro, yeah, the, yeah, well, that's also very true, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, so. At least one big-name sprinter, a handful of others as well. Gino Mater, the Yates brothers, Egon Bernal, who I keep saying we will hopefully get to see back to his best sometime soon. Maybe he'll start to do that in Romandie. That's going to get started on Tuesday, and we're not far now from the Giro d'Italia, by the way, so lots to look forward to in the stage racing department. That's all. That's all we have here for the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast today. We're glad you joined us. Of course. And Cosmo Ruth, Kit, great talking to you. Listeners, uh, we'll leave you with a little bit more of the Liège Best on the Liège Corral. See you next week.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Liege best on- Ich bin stolz auf mich, ich Best, best on me, I pass on me, I pass on me, I pass on me, I pass on 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 pass on